Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. The Middle Ages seem to be back in fashion. We're perpetually being told that uh, today's coronavirus is somehow akin to the 14th century Black Death that wiped out half of medieval Europe. Uh, And now America's most foremost geographer, Joel Kotkin, who teaches at Chapman University in Southern California, has a new book out called The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Joel, the coming of neo-feudalism, hasn't neo-feudalism already come about (laughs) 600 years ago? Well, I think that what the book is really about is the process that we are now in, which really is a, a return to the conditions, more feudal conditions, after really a, a, a long period where we were really moving away from that, in which there was, you know, greater rationality, um, uh, economic growth, upward mobility, all the things that uh, characterize the post Middle Ages. But I don't think it's completely, we're completely there yet. And the reason the subtitle is a warning to the global middle class is to say, look, there is definitely um, a uh, a problem here, but if we're aware of it, maybe we can do something about it. I mean, I'm not ready to give up all hope, but uh, um, I have to say that um, right now it looks a little bleak. What do you mean by neo-feudalism? It's, it's a term well, I, that gets thrown around a lot, but in your book, you're, you're quite specific and historical in, in your observations. Well, what I would say is there are several characteristics of, of, of neo-feudalism that are obviously very different. I mean, for instance, in the feudal era, you had a very stratified society. Um, the aristocracy, which was really the sort of military aristocracy, um, which was the, the dominant class, um, that has now been replaced by the tech oligarchs. They, they're now essentially the, the equivalent of the old aristocracy with enormous, almost unlimited resources. And that's, ability. Uh, the, the, that, that, so Silicon Valley is, is, uh, is the new chivalrous class. Well, yeah, I mean, chivalrous without chivalry. Um, right, without the chivalry. <laughs> but, um, but basically, they are the dominant class. They have been consolidating power at an incredible rate. And actually, the pandemic has accelerated that because more of us are forced to use uh, their mechanisms to get to where we need to go. Um, the the uh, and then we also have the rise of what I call the clerisy, which is in in the old French uh, estate, the old French first estate, and that was really the group. It, it had been the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church enforced orthodoxy on society, and more or less worked with the aristocracy to control society. The problem there has been that the um, and I think this is really quite evident um, that the clerisy today, which is not religious, 
but has the same tendencies towards orthodoxy. You can't say this, you can't say that. Um, you know, when you have universities that are 85, 90% of the professors are either um, of one ideology or are afraid to say anything about it, uh, this is this type of intellectual uh, uh, bullying um, is very you know, much in the Middle Ages. Plus, we have this enormous tendency towards uh, apocalypse, um, environmental apocalypse. You know, you mentioned the the pandemic, and look, it's a terrible thing, and uh, and and taking a great toll. But it's not remotely close to the Black Death or even the Spanish flu. It's 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 a problem. But everything gets blown up into some sort of you know the judgment of of, of God. But this, in in this case, it's often Gaia. You know, we violated something, and therefore we're being punished. And the only solution is to follow very specific recommendations from the clerisy, which includes, of course, a lot of the professional classes. So, you know, um, those are the two dominant classes. Those are the ascendant classes, as they were in the Middle Ages. The third class, which we would call in France, they call the third estate, but really is the uh, is the group that we use, we would call the middle class, which I divide, which I call the yeomanry, which are people who own small businesses, small property owners. Um, that group is probably just almost at the point of, of being eliminated by the pandemic. You look at the, what's been closed, what kind of restaurants, what kind of stores, very much the independents have had a very, very rough time of this. Um, and of course, you know, they don't have the, the resources to go online. Um, you know, the, the McDonald's and the Chick-fil-A's and the, and the Cane's and the Burger King's, I think they can kind of withstand this and actually even improve very, very difficult for, uh, for an independent business. All the time I hear from people saying, I have a shoe store on Cesar Chavez Boulevard, I'm closed, but my customers can go to Target and buy, and buy shoes there, um, that kind of thing. But the biggest worry I have is that this yeoman class is shrinking and people are going uh, and becoming what I would call serfs. And that is people who, will never own property, will always be renters, and will be living hand to mouth for their entire existence, and will be dependent on what the Marx called the proletarian alms bag. So that's sort of the society as I yeah, see Yeah, I think what's interesting, Joel, about your argument, I mean, it's interesting in many ways. Well, what's particularly interesting from a political point of view is, again, without wishing to categorize you, which means I am about to categorize you, you seem to be a representative of the old left. You're particularly outraged by the profound yawning economic inequalities of our yes. age. And yet you also see in perhaps in ideological terms, both the green movement and what's called cancel culture within the university or the identitarian political movement within the university as being ideological props of this neo-feudalism. Is that yes. fair? Well, because what you do is, first of all, how feudal can you get to, as to classify people by their, uh, by their race and gender? You know, this idea that you represent not yourself, which is really very much a bourgeois liberal idea, to uh, you represent a group or you're part of a group. Um, and I think that this is part of the, the, the whole problem. We don't we don't view people as, you know, as independent agents. One of the real accomplishments 
of the middle class revolutions of the 17th, 18th, 19th century, um, and then even further into the 20th, was this idea that the individual was sort of had free agency, could rise up, could fall down, um, was being judged by who they were. Now, was that perfect? No, I mean, there was certainly discrimination, but you think about all the discriminated groups that, that came out of, let's say, the United States in the 20th century who had been discriminated against, Jews, Japanese, Chinese, uh, uh, Indians, groups that had been consistently repressed. And here in California, the Asians really had it worse than the African-Americans did. And yet they've all been able to move up. Even in the question of, of, of race, you know, people say, well, if you have, you know, the, some of these groups have lighter skin, but Africans are doing very well in the United States, immigrants from Africa. People from the West Indies have done pretty well. Obviously, many Indians are very dark also. So I think that what's happened is we've forgotten the idea of free agency. We've forgotten the idea of sort of, you know, sort of the individualism that is at the key to the Constitution, to democracy, almost everywhere. You know, the old radical uh, theorist, the Barrington Moore, had a great little aphorism, which was uh, no bourgeois, no democracy. So... If let's say we have a country where, which, uh, which as the oligarchs would probably see it, where it's a very small group of people basically dominate and control the economy. They control the means of communication. They control the content. And, and basically everybody else is basically a, a, a serf, uh, you know, who live, you know, who, who's going to sit around and hope that Mark Zuckerberg can get $2,000 a month into their bank account so that they, they can live minimally. Joel, another piece of your argument that I was struck by that I think is really intriguing, I'm not sure everyone will agree, is that in your comparison between the neo-feudal world and the early 21st century, you say both are marked by the profound hypocrisy of the upper class. We all know, of course, about the upper class in, in, in the medieval world pretending to care about the <laughs> underclass and, of course, being enormously unimaginably privileged. You're suggesting the same is true today. Um, while I was reading that, I was thinking of uh, Ivanka Trump and her remarks about people finding new work and being like uh, uh, one of the members of the, the French aristocracy before the revolution, the, <laughs> the, the, the wife of Louis XIV, uh, who, who spoke about uh, the peasants eating cake. Uh, where, where's the real hypocrisy in today's upper class in this oligarchy or this clerisy well how how do i count the ways um i mean if you think in the environmental movement the and this has been true of the environmental movement from the beginning it's always been against the middle class consumption with no idea that their consumption is infinitely larger so so you have the dicaprio leonardo dicaprio i'm going to fight climate change and i'm going to take my private jet to new york every week or all, all the I remember I spoke once at an environment conference for the Wall Street Journal, and um, the the organizer told me that they had a problem because so many private jets were coming into Santa Barbara from Silicon Valley. So here are the people telling, you know, Mr. Rodriguez, well, you can't you can't have a single family home. You you have you can't use natural gas. You can't do this. You can't do that. Meanwhile, these people are taking private jets. 
does anyone see the 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 problem but, but here? Joel, is that really fair? I mean, you can always find a degree of hypocrisy. Are you suggesting that the entire clarity in our increasingly divided America that they're deeply hypocritical? I, I was really thinking more of the oligarchs. The clarity really varies. There are some at the very top who may have some of that kind of privileged position, but you know, many of the, the true believers tend to be in the clerisy. They, you know, they're university professors, the media, the media, which is, you know, as an old journalist, I find just absolutely horrendous in its, you know, you know, slavish um, conformity. Um, when, and, when you say an old journalist, you mean you're, you're old and you're a journalist or you're an ex-journalist? No, I still consider myself a journalist. But I am unfortunately also old, so uh, <laughs> you know. But but I but I think that what 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 you have is you have people who, um, or even within the the, the clerisy, they'll say, well, you know, we we uh, we want to impose this this and this restriction. But I work for the government, or I'm an administrator of a hospital, or I'm I'm in some sort of privileged position where I'm not really affected the way, let's say. Um, a, a, a oil worker in Bakersfield or a, or a, or a truck driver might be affected. Um, so there's a lot of hypocrisy, but the super hypocrisy is in the oligarchs and the oligarchs, um, they just don't see it. Like, you know, you, they'll support policies that would say here in California, we don't want people to have single family homes. We want them to live in dense apartments in the city. Meanwhile, how many houses does Mark Zuckerberg have? He bought up his old, whole neighborhood. <laughs> right, exactly. Or, or Jack Dorsey, who decides to take six months off in Africa and fly right. I mean, away there. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is so much of, if you read the Tocqueville's accounts of the French aristocracy, right. um, you know, and, and, then you, and then you have them, their, their strategy politically seems to be, we're going to buy off the opposition, any potential opposition, so, you know, you tell me what logic is there that Amazon gives money to Black Lives Matter, who are basically a bunch of Maoists, essentially. If you look at their ideology, that's what they are. Who, Amazon or the, the Black Lives Matter? But Black Lives Matter. But, but, so I mean, again, I'm, I'm not convinced, Joel, that's entirely fair, but but let's move well, on to the, read, the... Read, their, read their position papers. Well, but there may be some members of the Black Lives Matter movement who are who are Maoists, but not everyone out on the street are Maoists. Most of them have... No, not the Mao. people... Well, a lot of the people on the street come from a... And a lot of people, very well-intentioned, are out in protest. But if you read their 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 positions and you listen to interviews with their leaders, they're not hiding anything. So, so you have this odd situation, like during before the French Revolution, a lot of the aristocrats supported the sort of enlightened revolutionary ideas, only at the end of it, they ended up in the guillotine. I mean, what's really quite hilarious is that there were a bunch of, um, uh, there was some uh, video of a guillotine being set up in front of Bezos's own house. Now, I don't know if that was Black Lives Matter, but it was certainly people from from the left. So, you know, what I think you, you have is um, an attempt to um, buy off the opposition. And, and look, there are certain issues. If I'm an oligarch, environmental issues, gender issues, saying I'm against racism, but are you actually go going to do anything to, to address the real economic issues? And I appreciate your, I am sort of an old social Democrat. 
if we want to help people in the inner city, well, why don't we think about jobs? Why don't we think about uh, skills? Why don't we think about building uh, uh, better housing so they don't live on uh, in, in crowded, dilapidated conditions? But those are not the, the demands that we hear today. It, it, and, you know, really, if, if, if Amazon or Apple hire, you know, a bunch of, of, of people of color in executive positions, and exactly what, what has been improved. I mean, these were people who were going to get jobs anyway. Uh, what, what, um, what you have to ask yourself is, what would happen in Fresno if Tesla built its next factory in Fresno? That would make a difference. That would be infinitely more important than, than the demands of, of Black Lives Matter. And then on, obviously on, on top of all that, you know, the defunding the police, as Willie Brown said, is one of the stupidest slogans ever concocted because, you know, people are, are terrified. One of the big problems we, we have in our cities is that crime has come back very much like the Middle Ages. You, you know, you almost have to have private security. Well, the privatization of life, I think, is, is a very uh, interesting element in your argument. And you made you your your rep you made your reputation as an urban geographer. I think one of the more convincing aspects of your argument lies in urban geography. You're based in Southern California. I'm up in the Bay Area, and when you walk around San Francisco, as you note in your book, you really are returning to a medieval tableau of enormous wealth, which is guarded and private, and then the streets teeming with homeless people and hungry people and crazy people. It's almost as if when you go to San Francisco, it, it, it reminds you of the imagery of Bruegel or some other yes, yes. medieval artist. So is it in the cities that we are seeing this return to neo-feudalism most, most well, I think we're, clearly? Where it's most clear, particularly, and it's interesting, the cities which have had some of the worst uh, circumstances in the last five to 10 years, San Francisco, Seattle, Minneapolis, um, Portland. What's interesting is these are considered to be high tech, highly, um, a lot of educated people. They also happen to be the, the whitest cities in America, uh, Portland in particular. Um, and yet they have the craziest politics. Um, you know, it, 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 but I think what you're seeing is you're seeing in urban areas, as the middle class has left, middle class or middle class values still exist in the suburbs and exurbs. In the cities, there is no uh, familial middle class or very small. You look at cities like San Francisco, um, Seattle, Portland, Manhattan, in terms of New York, they have almost no children. There are very few families. I mean, it's really divided between this sort of upper class, including a lot of young people um, and the very, very rich, um, and, and then um, a large number of, of poor people. And as you mentioned, you know, the real, what you might call lumpen proletariat, the, you know, the homeless. So what are we going to do about it, Joel? Uh, you say it, it, it's not formalized yet. It's on the horizon or perhaps even closer to us than on the horizon. It's in our cities. But you argue that it's not inevitable, that we still do have uh, agency to change this. Well, how, how do we confront neo-feudalism? How do we turn back this, this, this disturbing tide? I don't think anyone's watching this wants to return to neo-feudalism. Well, I would say one, I would say you would have, and I think this is really important, um, you have to have some sort of attempt to either break up the tech 
elite, you know, the top five, six companies, break them up, or they have to be regulated as utilities at this stage of the game. Um, you know, you look at a company like Microsoft, which, you know, majors in, in crappy software, um, but they can get away with crappy software because there's not much of an alternative. I mean, there's Apple, which is small. Um, you have, you know, companies um, like what scares me the most of all, you have companies um, or entrepreneurs taking over the dissemination of news, deciding what, it, what you can see, what you can see. So, which tends to reflect, no offense, a kind of bizarre Bay Area view of the world, um, which is very, you know, very censorious, you know, sort of progressivism. Um, everybody I know in our business um, is terrified that Google's going to knock you off. You know, you're not going to be in YouTube. You're not going to be on, on Facebook. I mean, you know, I have friends who have been, you know, basically taken off. Who are, there's no way that they're racist, that, um, but, they're, but they disagree with the party line. Um, so I think that, what, what, A, we have to diminish the power of the oligarchs. One of the things that was so wonderful, I covered Silicon Valley in the 80s. And what was wonderful about it is it was very competitive. You know, there was a time when there were 40, 45 disk drive companies. Now, eventually there weren't 45, but in that process, fortunes were made, technological improvement. I mean, one of the reasons why the software doesn't get much better is you have monopolies. Why does Google want to make their service better? I would say in some ways their service is worse because they've they both politicized and commercialized their search results. So in the old days, it was really a very nice, pure program. That's why it did so well. We're seeing this over and over again, that the, the, the tech oligarchs seize a market very often using... Um, the idea that they have so much capital that they can afford to lose money for years and years, wipe out everybody else, and then take control. Um, so that's one thing. Second of all, absolutely has to be a um, a, a rejection of the cancel culture and the um, and the, the you know the censorious nature of the university and the and the media. I mean, one of the scariest things. I don't know if you read Barry Weiss's recent uh, letter or. Andrew Sullivan. Now we're not talking about, you know, the Hitler youth here. We're talking about people who are, lib you know, fairly liberal. And in Andrew Sullivan's case, you know, I would say basically a, a, a progressive himself, unable to deal with the kind of the culture at Vox, which is so, you know, censorious and so um, uh, controlling. So you've got to deal with that. Then you have to change the economic uh, priorities in this country one thing is to reshore more manufacturing from China. Moving all our production to China is a geopolitical and economic disaster for large, and for, particularly for large parts of this country. Um, we, our education system, we, we are increasingly more interested in indoctrination than education. Um, I don't know if you teach, but uh, um, the knowledge level of the kids going to college is so bad now. I mean, yes, they probably are a little bit better at 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 running PowerPoints. I'll, I'll give them that, and they sometimes use video well. But you ask them a question about the. I mean, how do you talk about feudalism to people who don't know what feudalism was? I mean, I literally. Well, one way, uh, Joe. Finally, one way to teach people is to read books. You mentioned to me before this interview that 
your family owned Shakespeare's books on uh, Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, where I live, one of the, the famous old bookstores, which no longer exists. Uh, everyone should read The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, which is a very provocative book. I, I think most people won't agree with everything in it, but I think the, there's stuff in it that's really important. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, impressed that you've said it. Um, what else should be probably reading? You're stuck down in Orange. Uh, what, what, uh, what, what uh, Orange County? What, um, what are the books or a book or two that people might read in the lockdown that will make them more enlightened? That will make them well, see what you're arguing. Well, there's a terrific book called *The Fate of Rome* by Kyle Palmer, which talks about the role of climate and particularly pandemics in the uh, collapse of the Roman Empire. It's a really quite Good book. As a, an old Gibbon fan myself, it added a whole nother picture of what was going on. Uh, the The Great Influenza by John Barry, I think, is a very good cautionary tale. Uh, Plagues and People by by William McNeil. I I would say those are three that I would really look at um, to get some idea and some perspective. Like one of the things that we that if you read all those books, you see the role of globalism and trade and congestion and crowding in making pandemics work um, and how they spread and then what was the effect of them. Uh, th those three books I would really recommend. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.